Hey guys, I am back again with another author interview today. I got to chat with Megan Collins, who is the author of The Winter Sister Behind the Red Door and her latest novel, The Family Plot, which I covered on an episode of the podcast. I actually also covered Behind the Red Door last summer. We chatted so much for so long. It was honestly just such a joy to talk to her and hear more about this book. I loved it so much when I was reading it I was just like I need to talk to this author and find out what went behind this book it's one of the most original thrillers I have ever read and I think we had a really great conversation about true crime and family dynamics and kind of everything that goes into the broader conversation about true crime and it was just so great she was so insightful and I think Hearing what went into this book and her thought process behind everything really just added to the experience of it. And I'm going to go ahead and say it now. It is one of my favorite books of the year. So you can pick up all of her books now. The Family Plot is the latest one that we're chatting about today. And I hope you enjoy this interview with Megan Collins. This is going to be the best book you ever read. Like, this is your new favorite book. Off the internet, man. Mm-hmm. Books to cram. Oh, I need to go be introverted. <laughs> welcome to Books in the City. <laughs> hey guys, welcome back to Books in the City. I'm Kayla. And I'm Megan. Thank you so much for joining us today. As I was reading this book, I was like, I need to talk to this author because I have so many questions, but also I just want to like pick your brain on how this (laughs) came to be. Um, And a little background, like fun fact. So usually when we do an author interview, we know about it before I like read the book. You were the first person I like in the DMs. It's like, <laughs> can I talk to you, please? So this is like a very new, exciting thing that we're doing today. Hey, well, thank you. I'm honored. I'm happy to be here. And I know a ton of our listeners have been reading the book as well. So it's just very exciting in the Books in the City universe. So can you give our listeners the elevator pitch for The Family Plot? Yeah, the elevator pitch is basically a true crime obsessed family gathers to bury their patriarch only to discover the remains of their long missing brother already in his grave. And now they have a murder on their hands, a mystery on their hands, and they've got to figure some things out. (laughs) So when I first read like just that summary months and months ago, I was like, one, I know I'm going to love this book. Um, but also it is so original. And on the episode where I talked about it, I said that it's such a great idea that it almost seems so obvious. And I can't believe no one's done it before. Like, why wouldn't there be a true crime obsessed family thriller? So congratulations for being the first. How did you come up with this idea? Um, it all spun out from the title actually which is really unusual for me because I usually have such trouble titling things and I usually have just like a like a bad placeholder or one that I don't really care about until um, usually my agent and I figure out a title but for this one I was working on something different that I couldn't figure out a title for and I was asking my husband for suggestions and I said you know, this, this has to do with the family because my books always do. I want something that points to the family aspect. And so he just threw out a phrase with family in it, the family plot. And um, I was like, huh, that doesn't fit for this at all. But that's an amazing title in general. And so that just kind of kept floating around in my head for a few days as I was continuing to try to work on this other project. And then one morning, it just like sprang into my head more of a kind of bare bones version of that pitch, which was just that a family was gathering to bury one family member only to discover another family member buried in their grave who they didn't even know was dead. And I kind of, my husband was brushing his teeth at the time and I burst into the bathroom and just like yelled that at him. <laughs> like it was excitement. <laughs> and he was just kind of like, okay, I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> um, And so then I was obsessed with that idea and I started to think um, what family would be most interesting to see in this kind of super weird, creepy situation. And I'm such a fan of true crime. So um, I started thinking like it would be really interesting if this family who had kind of grown up 
um, being obsessed with, being fascinated with murder stories becomes the center of a murder story themselves. And now we have to see how they're going to react to that. So that's kind of the, where the seed of this story was planted. And then characters started coming to me in setting and things like that. So the dedication of this book is for the murderinos. And I got like so excited when I read that. And there's just a ton of references to these famous cases throughout the book. I'm going to go ahead and assume that you're a murderino. Yes, um, for sure. <laughs> how did you decide which true crime cases to mention in the book? Um, well, it was a couple things for um, one aspect of it. All the So with this really strange family, um, this murder-obsessed family, uh, they named their four children after famous victims of murder. Um, and in the book, they're now adults, but... Um, they so for those which are mentioned in the first paragraph um everybody and their different namesake and the narrator is dahlia named after the black dahlia and charlie is after the Lindbergh baby and tate after sharon tate and then andy who's the one who ends up getting murdered by an ex is after andrew borden who was also murdered by an ex most likely maybe by his daughter lizzie borden um, so for those in particular, because they were starting off the story, um, I wanted them to be really pretty well-known cases that even if you're not a murderino, even if, even if you don't have a big true crime background, that you, would, that you would have some association with, that you would be familiar with, so that it could set the tone right away that like this is what this family is, that they named their kids after murder victims. Um, and then... When it came to all the other ones, a lot of the ones that I put in were stories that I've been really fascinated with. Um, like, for example, uh, Kitty Genovese is one. I don't know if that's how, I don't know if it's Genovese or Genovese. I always say Genovese in my head. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Now that I say it out loud, I'm like, oops. Yeah. Um, but she was one that I've always been really interested in. So I, I built her into it. And um of course, now that I'm like trying to think of ones, I can't think of a single one that's in the book, but there are so many. <laughs> but it, yeah, there yes. are so many. So it was a lot that I was putting in that were ones that um, I am really fascinated by. But then there were also ones where I just, I had to like do some research. Like I knew I needed a serial killer who might've been active at this point. So then I just looked that up. And, and so my Google search history became a very dangerous place <laughs> if any, if the FBI was watching, as is the case with most thriller authors, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it was a mix of wanting those familiar names with the definitely the more obscure ones for the hardcore murderinos who would recognize that and get kind of a little thrill from it. So I, my next question was going to be about the family's names. Was there anyone else though that was in the running or did you know those four right away? I think, yeah, I don't remember anybody else being in the running because those um, really felt right to me for the characters. Um, Usually when I'm naming characters, I don't put that much thought into it. Usually their name just sort of pops into my head and all I have to do is make sure either one, I haven't used that name before or that I don't have too many names in the book that sound the same or start with the same letter. So um, when I thought of Charlie I'm like yeah that feels right for this character and then um Andy same thing and then Tate I was briefly thinking of calling her Sharon because she's after Sharon Tate but my agent is Sharon and so I didn't want to like think I was naming this really strange character after (laughs) her um but Tate felt it just felt really right to me so I really got those pretty quickly early on and and they just stuck that was just who they were going to be Tate specifically, I was like, oh, that's so good. Because like you mentioned, like you didn't use the first name. It's just, it's weird to say it was like exciting, but <laughs> it was like, oh, this is, this is cool. Um, So we have the plot of them finding like their family members remains, but then there's also a, well, there once was an active serial killer on this island where the family lives. So did you pull inspiration from any real life cases for that or was it what was it like kind of like making up this serial killer and obviously he has like his signature thing yeah um I didn't I didn't base him on any like specific real life serial killer I think it was more so um from my general 
knowledge of, of serial killers and knowing that there's usually a methodology, there's usually, like you said, a signature thing, and his is um, that he would brand the women's ankles, he, he strangled them, and then he would um, kind of push them out into the water on the island, but only very shallowly so that they would wash back onto shore to be found, which I thought was kind of creepy. And um, so it was, it was, I mean, it makes me sound so twisted, but it was fun coming up with. Well, I feel the same way because yeah. like, I loved reading about this. <laughs> it was fun coming up with like, what is, um, what is this person's MO and, and how does it, because there's a little bit about how it changed over time. And, um, and so adding in those details and, and just even like coming up with the names it became very real to me. Like in my head, I would be like, okay, there's Claudia Adams and there's uh, Melinda Wharton. And like, they felt like real victims to me, um, which, you know, I just created these people to be dead bodies, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was, I had never created a serial killer before. So it was a fun, but dark exercise. <laughs> well, I think you did such a great job with it because as you mentioned, like some of the killers like signature things changed as they kept killing and I it was just so realistic and it's something that I feel like you don't usually see in books like this so I just like great job on that <laughs> I thought it was like really cool the creepiest thing about the killer for me was that he would dress the girls in these like gowns before yeah. putting them out to sea which is like eerily like creepy and beautiful in yeah. a weird way so yeah I um, forgot that in my own thing of mentioning <laughs> yeah that there were well, these... it really stuck with me because I was creeped out <laughs> yeah and I wanted something because um the sister Tate in the book creates these crime scene dioramas uh depicting those murders that she grew up hearing about um on their island and so I wanted there to be something that if you just looked at the diorama, like you said, like it's creepy, but there's something sort of beautiful to it and frozen in time so that it would be this like gruesomely aesthetically pleasing thing. And you could see why people would be so interested in it because she does get like a little, a little bit of fame from it. Yeah. So back to the family, um, Dahlia and her siblings had a very unique schooling experience. And I tried to sum it up on the podcast. I don't think I did it enough justice. So can you expand on that and then tell us how you came up with their homeschool curriculum? Yeah. So um, the mother, Lorraine, homeschooled them. And in addition to teaching them math and science and English and all of that, she would teach them these murder stories from a very early age to the point where in the first sentence of the book, we find out that the narrator has known her namesake story, Dahlia, the Black Dahlia, which is such a gruesome case um, since she was four years old. So it's not even like, we're going to wait till you're 12 and like can handle this material. Like she was just throwing it at them from a very early age. And so um, there are a lot of different little specifics about it. Like they would have to do these murder reports instead of like a typical book report type thing where they'd have to write about murders or um, give their own theories about certain killers or things like that. Um, they had, they have something in their house that they refer to as the victim room, which is, that's where they did their schooling. And it's because that's where they kept all the newspapers and books about these true crime stories. And, um, so yeah, just really unusual and creepy and dark. And then the darkest thing I think is that the mother would do these, um, murder reenactments in front of the children. Like there's one detail about how she was uh, depicting a story where someone was getting stabbed multiple times and she wore this white t-shirt and took a red sharpie and just like stabbed it at herself and and these kids are just watching it as if it's like a chemistry experiment that's being done in front of them and they have no idea which is something I really wanted to play with in the book like they have no idea at that time that that's not how you grow up and that that's not what you yeah. learn as we all don't with our own peculiar things in our families. When you were just talking about that, it reminded me how the mom would say that she wanted to prepare them for what, like the worst that life has author and offer. And it kind of like 
weirdly reminded me of why I became so interested in true crime because I was like, oh, after I started listening to my favorite murder, I now lock my car when I get Mm -hmm. in it. Like, I'm more careful about things. But I think you did such a great job of kind of taking that thing that I think a lot of women especially take from true crime, but like really going above and beyond (laughs) the next level. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely as soon as I knew that the family was going to be this true crime obsessed family, I wanted to really explore what it is about true crime that has so many people so fascinated, especially now these days when I feel like it, we have, it's more available to us than ever before with all the podcasts and documentaries and docu-series and books and all of that. Um, So I wanted to really look at like, what do we get from that? Why do we, turn that on again and again when it's so dark and it's really depressing and scary. Um, And then on the flip side of that, I wanted to look at too, how can it potentially hurt us to really saturate ourselves with those stories? So definitely the mother thinking that, you know, I'm preparing you for the world, I'm preparing you for the bad things out there. Um, She thinks this is this benefit to uh, what the way she's raised them, but it, as we see, it has also kind of hurt them in various ways too. Well, I think you did a really great job of exploring the line that I do think this line exists between honoring these victims and then kind of exploiting their death. And you did it in a way where I didn't feel uncomfortable that I was able to recognize so many of these cases because we do see some extremes in like the mom character and then Tate with her dioramas. And then there's this character, Greta, who's kind of like an armchair detective. Um, It kind of made me reflect on why I consume so much true crime and like the way that I do. So was this something that on the outset was important for you to include or did it kind of pop up naturally? Yeah, actually the whole um, kind of like mission statement, I guess, of this family as I was creating it was for them, they believe that what they're doing is honoring these victims. They have things that they call honorings of the victims of murder where they light candles and they say this little, they call it a prayer, but it's not, it's not really a prayer, but, um, and, and so they believe that this is all about like, we're respecting them. And for me, that came from like, there's, there's this thing in the whole true crime community and everything that like, when you are listening to these stories and you're talking about these stories, we say, oh, well, you know, it's not about the killers. It's about the victims. It's about remembering their stories and not letting them die just because uh somebody some like sick animal killed them like we're going to remember them but and like i believe that i think that that's good and i think that that's what we should do but i was also i always also kind of think but i do know a lot about serial killers and i do know a lot about the killers in these cases Mm -hmm. so i think that we say that and we want to believe that and we mean that, that it's about the victims, but you can't really, you know, when, when the story that you're telling is not about like their biggest achievement in life or what they wanted to do when they grow up, when the story you're telling about them is, is how they were murdered, then you can't separate that from the killers. And so I wanted to explore that too in the book that this family thinks that they are honoring these victims, but in a way they're still perpetuating like making legends of the killers themselves. I was just so impressed by how you pulled that off. And I think it opens up a really important narrative and maybe conversation that people need to have like with each other or like just how I was like thinking to myself. So um, it was also like really interesting and almost like refreshing to read about it in a thriller where like there is a serial killer and you're trying to solve these things, but it's like, Hey, like we need to kind of acknowledge this other side of it as well. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that that came through. (laughs) (laughs) Great job. Um, so back to the story a bit, the house itself that they grew up in was such an interesting setting. There's like Dahlia ends up discovering these secret rooms. There's the victim room, like you mentioned, but then it's also located on this Island that, I thought really added to the spookiness. So what was your thought process behind both of these settings? So I knew right away, and I, I don't know if it was a conscious choice so much as as soon as I started picturing this creepy, dark, sort of disturbing family that I just saw them in this very big house. Um, but once I had that house 
as kind of this main set piece. And the thing is, most of the scenes in the book take place in the house. So I really felt like with this book, it, it felt like I was sort of like playing in this dollhouse with this character that I was moving them around into different spaces and, and seeing how each room would bring out things with them or bring out, open up certain conflicts. Um, but so once I had that idea of the house, um, I knew I wanted them to be really isolated because they are isolated sort of by nature because their mother, their parents would kind of keep them at home, you know, they're homeschooled, but also everybody on the island where they lived did not understand them. And they, they talked about them and they thought they were just these freaks over there. They called their house murder mansion because they were really freaked out by the way they lived, which is understandable. And um, so I knew I wanted to play up that isolation even more. And so I thought setting it on an island would be a great way to show that not only are they cut off from the people in their town, they're sort of cut off from the rest of the world. And so I also tried to make these sort of like interior rings of isolation. So you have the house and they're inside there and most of the book takes place there. But then outside of the house, there's, they don't just like look out and they see this beautiful ocean view. They have, they're hemmed in by really thick forest woods. And so you have that kind of ring around them and, and their neighbors aren't very close to them. And then after that, after the woods, you have this sort of rocky shore. So it's not even like a, like a nice sandy beach that you would walk along and have a nice day. It's like not a great place to navigate. And so that's sort of like another way that's keeping them um, in their tight little circle. And then of course there's the ocean keeping them away from everybody else. So I, I wanted the setting to uh, perpetuate that feeling that they're really, really secluded. So what kind of research goes into a book like this? I know you've mentioned your Institute of Crime. So did you have to like go back to cases that you wanted to add? Like, what was that like? Yeah, I definitely um, did a bit of deeper dives into cases that I was already familiar with, but sometimes I needed like a very specific detail. And so I would, I would look those things up. And, and sometimes I just, there were news stories that I hadn't heard of at all that I was putting in that just came up in my research. Um, and I feel like the thing that I learned the most or that struck me the most was just how many serial killers there really have been. Because, I mean, like, we know that there's been a lot, but it also, when you think of a serial killer, you're kind of, it's like this, like, vague threat or, like, this story you tell at, like, a sleepover when you're a kid mm -hmm. about, like, a scary man who goes around killing everybody. And, and, but, like, I would just see these lists of serial killers throughout time. And, and it's just like, wow, like all of these people killed multiple people. And it was just wild to me. It was just like seeing it written down like that in, in a, this compact space. It's just names. It was like, and that's a name that represents in a way, like all these other names of the people that they killed. So that was kind of like an oh. eerie thing that came up for me in the research, just like something I already knew, but hadn't really like looked at in that sort of way. Yeah, because it's kind of easy to ignore when you're like just listening to an episode about one person or a documentary series or something. So I'm that is like very jarring. Yeah, I am just a huge fan in general of like sibling stories and like family dramas and dynamics. And all of your books have had that in such a great way. But this one specifically. So once we find out that Andy is the person in the family plot, you see each family member cope in a very different way. So for example, Charlie decides to turn their house into a museum, which I thought was like almost funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cause I also love seeing like the locals perspective of mm -hmm. the family, like as outsiders. Tate, as you mentioned, has her Instagram page where she makes these like dioramas of the murders and then Dahlia is like I need to figure out what happened mm -hmm. so what was your process behind each of these different ways of like coping through grief it's funny because when I was coming up with those um I had mentioned how I had that other idea that I was working on at the time and so that idea had been like pretty fully formed like I my agent and I were ready to basically send that as a proposal to my editor. And then this story comes in and I said to my agent, like, I feel like I should be writing this, but I'm not sure. And so she's wow. like, why don't you put a, put together a little pitch for this? And we would show my editor and she could say which she most wanted to see materials for. 
So I'm like, okay, all I have is that like little premise, but all right. So I just sat down and I wrote like two paragraphs, like basically the kind of thing you'd see on the back of the book. And um, in it, I was like, every family member reacts to this revelation in a very strange and unsettling way. And then I was like, okay, so what are those strange and unsettling ways? And then I just wrote like, the mother won't stop baking cookies, even though she used to be all about murder. And the, the, the brother, it makes this murder museum and this in their house and the sister makes it. So like, I literally just pulled those out of my head and threw them on to the page. And then I was like, oh, well, I kind of like each of those things. Like, why is the mother baking cookies so much? And um, so for me, with each one, I was kind of, um, in a way, both exploring like the different effects that that saturation of true crime can have, um, but also how they're coping with grief. Like um, Tate is turning to art as she thinks it's this kind of therapy for it, but she has certain revelations. Um, the mother is kind of like denying everything and like going in her own, like she's just thinking, oh, I'll make these cookies and that makes everything better. And, and Charlie is doing a whole lot of stuff, like kind of putting on this <laughs> performance to act like everything's okay. Cause he's also an actor in his regular life. So I wanted each of their things. Once I realized that I liked those things, I wanted to be able to connect that to there's something that they're getting from this um, that is helping or they think is helping them to cope, but maybe is keeping them from coping, which is something I deal with a lot in my books is the things we do um, where we think we're moving on, but really we're like sticking ourselves in the same place over and over. It's also very realistic, um, but kind of without giving too much away, we do like see each family member have this kind of reckoning over obviously this tragedy and then Dahlia especially kind of realizing she maybe she didn't know everything about her family and like she didn't know Andy as well as she thought she did and her relationship with Andy specifically like broke my heart her longing for him and this was the first time I've ever found myself tearing up during a thriller I think you do such a great job in all of your books of like really emphasizing the family aspect of it. And it's just like very refreshing to read. So is this something that you purposely set out to do or does it kind of just happen for you along the way once you start writing? Um, well, thank you. I'm happy you do that, <laughs> I guess, because it means it touched you in some way. But um, I think it's just that I'm, I'm really interested in these very complicated relationships between family members. And that tends to bring up a lot of emotional things. And there's usually um, some kind of grief attached to that, either grieving that the, the person you thought that they were isn't that person or literally grieving somebody because they're dead or um, coming to terms with you can't have the relationship you want with this person. So you either have to accept the relationship you have or get out of it altogether. And so those, those are really emotional places, I think. And um, so I think it's just a product of kind of the themes I'm interested in, but I also, um, it's just, it's like, it feels more meaningful to me to write by going into those really emotional places and to be able to say, hopefully, um, that people can, you know, read a, read a fun, entertaining story, but also take something from it and, and have these characters imprint themselves a little bit on them. That's always the goal. Um, I'm, I feel like I'm just praising the book constantly, but I think you do such a great job of it. And I honestly, I read a lot of thrillers and I can't even think of another one that like I've had almost that same level of reaction to. So Thank great you. job Thank on that. So um, okay. We're going to enter major spoiler alert here. Becky, who's going to edit this, please enter that. Spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. If you don't want to be spoiled, now's your chance to check the show notes for timestamps to skip ahead. Spoiler alert. So I can't have you here and not talk about the way things end. Mm -hmm. I never saw things coming. So with the plot of the serial killer, we find out that it is their dad. But the twist that he had his sons help him was 
so shocking to me, tragic, brutal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we obviously find out how Andy died. So can you talk us through kind of your side of how both of those things wrapped up? Yeah, I, something I'm interested in is, and I I think there are threads of this in all of my books is um, how the way we're raised shapes who we are and how it can create blind spots for us, how it can um, make us interpret things differently than other people would. And so this, you know, of course you have that in the book with the true crime thing and how that's made them who they are as adults. But this was kind of taking that to a new level. It was, it was, it's an abusive situation, what the father did to the kids, even though he never touched them. He never uh, like physically violated them. You could say he never, um, you know, left any bruises, but it's, it's abusive. It's like, that's all there is to it. And so I, I don't really know when that came to me, but there's just a certain point where it did. I think I knew the father was going to be the serial killer and, but I didn't want him to have been the one to kill Andy. And so um, I think it was actually my husband. I had an idea for someone else to have been the killer of Andy at least. And my husband was like, I don't think that they're the killer. I think it's um, Charlie. And I was like, well, what do you know? You're not writing this book. And then, and then I thought about it though. And I was like, oh no, like that does feel right. As I started to think about it and these threads started to come together of, um, you know, so we find out that Charlie and Andy both went through this terrible thing and Charlie's way of coping with that was to get out of there as quickly as he could. But also that meant knowing that he was leaving his brother in that situation, which is a burden that he has to now carry on top of the burden of having seen his father kill these women. And then Andy, um, his way of coping was always taking this ax to the trees and like getting out his frustration and his anger and his like, just all the wild feelings he would be having. Um, And then of course, with the scene at the end where Charlie says he was begging me to kill him. He didn't want to live anymore with what he had done. And, and, and then Charlie is like, as Andy is begging him, Charlie is seeing his own self kind of begging him and he wants to kill that part of himself. Um, and I've had a couple people be like, I don't know, like, is Charlie lying? Like, did he just say that and he killed him for another reason? Um, but I feel like whether it's, that's how it really played out. Like Charlie really believes that that is what happened. And I never set out for it to be like, no, 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 something else is happening. But I don't know, like, it's, as soon as I thought of it, I was like, that is so dark. It is the darkest thing I've ever thought of. It is, um, it's terrible, but I also liked that it would allow me to talk about, um, the lingering trauma of abuse, of, um, secrets, of, um, especially keeping secrets for your parents, these people who are just supposed to protect us. And it, and I, it was such a interesting contrast. I felt that the mother wants to protect them so badly that her way to do that is to tell them these murder stories. And on the other end of that, the father is putting them straight into those stories. And so you have one who's not protecting them at all. And in fact, damaging them and the other who's trying so hard to protect them that she's kind of damaging them as well. And it all just felt very rich to me and interesting. And like I said, extremely dark. And I, I really love writing dark stuff. So yeah, it, it, I, I, don't, I can't really even say much more about it because I, it kind of like creeps me out when I think about how did my mind even come up with that? I don't know. Well, I but. thought it was <laughs> shocking, obviously, but then the more I thought about it, like Charlie was one of my favorite characters and his pain is so evident throughout the whole book. I think once you like knowing that information and then also what we know of Andy leading up to the day of his death that I felt like I could actually see Andy begging his brother like to just kind of end his torment so um just I feel like I the main word I've used to describe this book is original because it's just so unlike anything else I've read um 
so another, this is another huge spoiler, but the family's origin story, so to say, is that they're, the mom's parents were like murdered in a home invasion. And that's why she moved to their summer home. And that's how she kind of became introduced to like true crime in this whole world. But we find out that that's actually a lie. So I kind of wanted to get what your thought process was behind that. That was one of the most shocking things in the book for me. Oh, good. Um, yeah, I felt like, you know, with thriller readers, they tend to read so many thrillers that it's really hard to surprise them. <laughs> and, you know, no matter what you do, I feel like you'll always get readers who are like, I saw this coming from page one. And so I, I was like, okay, I don't think you're going to see this coming because why would you ever think this? <laughs> um, but for me, the, the motive behind that um, reveal that it was really that her parents had been smokers and they had gotten lung cancer um, was that I had read somewhere, like, I don't know where it was, but somebody had said that a lot of times for women, especially um, true crime is sort of like a metaphor for us, for the pain and the anxiety that we live with. And you can like see it acted out by somebody else. And there's some weird degree of comfort in that. Like, even if your pain has nothing to do with having a family member murdered or whatever it is, like there's some strange solace in that. Um, and so I wanted to, again, in thinking about what do people get from true crime? Why do they turn to true crime? I wanted to explore that aspect of it and how it can be this weirdly comforting thing to listen mm -hmm. to these podcasts. Um, and, you know, never because you're like, oh, yay, more dead people, but, but because it's tapping into something that's very like primal and human and, and makes you feel sort of less alone in these things. So I knew I wanted the mother to have created this fiction for their whole lives um, because she saw it as a way of, as she says in the book, validating her grief that because when people found out that her parents died of lung cancer, they were sort of like, oh, okay, well, they were smokers. Mm -hmm. So like, what did they expect? And she's like, but they were still my parents. And she felt like she didn't have a right to her grief when they were saying that. But then she heard, listens to these stories and people were saying things about losing the murder victims who had been their family members. And what they were saying was really resonating with her for her own loss. And so she found like that as a place of solace for her and just wanted to kind of like live in that dark space because there was something kind of comfortable about it and comforting. Um, so that's, that's what I wanted to explore with that. That, that was definitely one of those, like, what do we get from this kind of thing? But of course, on the flip side of that, she like, that's not a good thing that she's doing. And it's not, um, it's not good that she lied to her kids and she created this whole world and lifestyle for them based off of a lie. Um, but there's there's a lot in the book about like the stories we tell both about ourselves and about other people and about how that can limit them and also how people can find um something that resonates with them about that but that that it is it is very limiting sometimes again with these stories of these victims where we're just talking about the moment of their death and not their actual lives it was also really interesting when dahlia finds out that everyone who lived on this island knew that that was a lie. And it was kind of part of like what made her like the folklore around this family that made them like, I described, I compared them to the Adams family just cause they're like a spooky <laughs> kooky family. But um, yeah, yeah, I thought it was just so interesting, especially the lung cancer narrative, both of my mom's parents side of lung cancer. So I totally relate to that. Cause it's like, this could have been prevented. Like um, it's not mm -hmm. this, not that death needs to have like this glamorous, crazy, elaborate story, but I just thought that was like a very realistic um, thing that you added in. So the, our last spoiler, um, the book ends with the family kind of deciding to go away together and they're going to fight and scream and like do whatever they have to do. So I was wondering if you could picture this family in five or 10 years, where do you think they are? It's so interesting getting questions like that because I I never thought of it. And like 
people have asked me that about other books, like, um, you know, in a year, what's happening to this character or whatever, or did this end up okay? And for me, I'm always just like, that's like now the mm -hmm. reader's job to think of, because for me, these, and I'm, I'm not saying that as like, a, like, I'm not trying to no. pop out or weasel my way out of the question, but I, I truly like never think about it. Um, I sort of like create these characters. I get them through their arcs and my hope is, or my goal is to leave them in a better place than they were in the beginning, even if it seems worse, even if they've revealed all this painful stuff, but now they've brought these things to the surface that hopefully they can heal. So all I can really say is that I, I did get them to that place where they can actually start talking to each other and being honest and all these secrets are out and they can get to know each other as an actual family and not just like a family with all this murder and all of that around it. Um, and so my hope is that they would start to cultivate healthier relationships with each other and that they would be able to forgive each other and themselves where needed for um, all these terrible things that happened. Um, but I don't, I don't know. Um, and a, another reader might, or a reader might say, no, I want them to always like be <laughs> at each other's throats because that's more interesting. And, but I mean, I do like, I, I ended it in that way with the hope that things can get better because that is what I hope for them. I hope that they do um, come through all those things. And I say that as if like, they're actually out there in therapy, like working on it, but <laughs> they feel well, real I me. never <laughs> really think I had like, obviously I'm not writing the books, but I usually am like, okay, that was this story and whatever. But with this family specifically, mm -hmm. I think that because I'm very interested in like how siblings go through the same experience, but experience it very differently. And that's something that like comes into play in yeah. this book. But I felt like they ended it where they were all kind of ready to acknowledge this wild shared experience they had and be vulnerable about it and move forward. So in my mm -hmm. little universe, I'm going to say that they're friends. <laughs> Who knows though? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Um, okay. So I have loved all of your books, but I wanted to give a shout out to Behind the Red Door. First of all, another wildly original plot. Um, I'm also really interested in like memory and things like that. So that was like right up my alley. But the way you wrote about anxiety in that book and kind of like the experience of living with it was so real and so like nice to read so while I had you here I just wanted to say thank you for including that it was nice to feel like seen almost in a thriller of oh. all genres too well thank you I mean that means so much to me because um yeah I, I mean when I wrote that book I wanted to represent anxiety the way that I lived it which I've never seen represented in a thriller exactly the way that I have and and so it was like, as I was writing it, I was like, oh, I feel seen. And I'm like, well, I'm seeing myself. But it was kind of like, as I was writing it, you know, it was a separate character. So I, I always have, even like my terrible characters, I have to have some degree of empathy for them in order to make them human and not just like villains or whatever. So I had empathy for my main character. And so I was sort of finding like this empathy for myself of, you know, you know, living with anxiety, you have these thoughts that other people yeah. are like, why are you worrying about that? Why are you thinking about that? And it can make you feel like you're so crazy. Um, and so I got a lot out of writing that. So it means so much to me to hear you say that about reading it. So thank you. Thank you for well, going on that Thank you journey. for <laughs> writing it as well. Um, switching back to true crime now, I personally think that everyone has one cold case where they're like, this is the one I want solved. Mine is I need to know what happened to Madeline McCann, the girl who was kidnapped in Portugal. Mm. Um, do you have one? And if so, what is it? I do. Um, and I don't, well, I, I had two, but now I think oh. one has been solved. Um, one was the Elisa Lamb one which they just did a documentary about on Netflix. And she was the one who was in the hotel and acting really weird on security cameras in an elevator. And then her body was found naked in like the, the water tank on top. And, but I guess it, from the documentary at least, it turns out that it was some kind of oh. psychotic break. So it wasn't actually like a murder. So it's really devastating and sad still. Um, but, so I guess that one's solved. But my other one is, um, and I don't, think it's solved but I know that there was a book fairly recently published about it that I just 
bought because mm-hmm. I need to read it. Um, so maybe I'll find out that it's been solved or that new things have happened um, that warranted the book. But I don't know how to say her last name, but Rebecca Zahau, Z-A-H-A-U, which is, um, it was like early 2000s. There was some weird thing where her, like she lived in this big house with her husband and I think it was her husband's kid and not her kid, but the kid like fell down the stairs or something and had this accident while she was home and ended up in the hospital for like days. I don't remember what happened to the kid, but I'm assuming he ended up okay because that's not the part I remember. So like check in the box, he's fine. Um, But then she, I think there was some speculation, like, did she do something to him? But like, she was saying, no, I didn't. And then they found her um, hanging from the balcony of her bedroom, naked, hands bound, feet bound, and painted onto the wall or the door or something in the room was, she saved him, can you save her? Oh my God. Which is the creepiest thing I've ever heard I don't even know what that means like she saved him like do they mean the kid because like she didn't really because he fell on the stairs but um and what do you mean can you save her like she's out the window but they ruled it a suicide and it's like she has her hands bound behind her back and her feet bound and they're saying and they did some recreation and they're like yeah well you could definitely kill yourself that way and like it's totally possible and i just i'm like no that is not what happened and so i really want to know wow that's so interesting i haven't heard of that case um Oh, it just haunts me. Yeah. That message is Ugh. so creepy. So I know that a lot of our listeners are also big true crime fans. Um, we've mentioned my favorite murder, but well, I've mentioned it a lot. But um, what are your <laughs> favorite podcast documentaries? Anything that you recommend? Um, I really like Criminal, um, and I like it because it's it's not always murder, and sometimes mm-hmm. you need a little break from murder. <laughs> Imagine that. Um, but it, it's like these really interesting crime stories. And then I also really like In the Dark for another one of those kind of like deep dives into one case per season type things. And the documentary, it was actually three documentaries um, that got me into true crime was, and they're a little older now at this point, but the Paradise Lost documentaries on HBO, which was about the West Memphis oh. Three, um, and which was these three teenager, these three kids were killed and these three teenagers were convicted of it basically like in a satanic panic type of thing, like because they liked metal and they dressed in black. And so like, of course they did it. And um, they were, one was sent to death row because they believed he was like the ringleader. And then he spent 18 years there. The others were in jail. And then they finally, it was like, maybe five, six, seven years ago at this point, they got out of jail because DNA evidence came up that showed that it couldn't have been them, but they had to sign an Alford plea, which meant that they were, they still have to say they're guilty, but that, or that the the state has enough evidence to say that they're guilty, but they're saying they're innocent. I don't know. So it's basically something like they get to be free, but they never actually got to be like fully, fully exonerated, which is so frustrating, but at least they're out and that's good. Um, So that case and those, it was like a trilogy of documentaries um, on HBO. Those were really what um, like sparked my true crime interest because just somebody recommended it to me and then I watched it and I was like, I want more things like that. (laughs) I want everything (laughs) like that. so yeah, if, if people haven't seen that, I really def- I recommend checking that out. I had a very similar experience with an HBO doc, but it was the Jenks about Robert Durst, who he like was just on trial last week or something. He never goes away. Yeah. But I remember like <laughs> laying in my dorm room and my mind was blown, like mm-hmm. just completely and then opened up. That one. Oh my God. If anyone listening has not watched the documentary, like don't look anything up, just go watch it. It's so wild. I feel like to this day, I haven't been so shocked at yeah. documentary. Maybe because it was the first, but the right. ending is just so wild. Yeah. Um, so is there anything that you're working on now that you can tell us about? Um, yeah. So what I'm working on now, it'll probably be out early 2023. Um, and it's about, uh, it's definitely much less 
Well, I mean, I feel like with the family plot, I put everything in it that was like the darkest thing possible. So I was like, what else is there? Um, but so it's about a pair of really, really close sisters-in-law. They're like best oh. friends. And um, their bond is tested for the first time ever when the man that connects them, so one's brother, one's husband, um, becomes the main suspect in this really high profile murder. And so he's also at the time in a coma because he got into this car accident, which is how the police found this evidence in his car that they think ties him to the murder. And so um, these two women, these sisters-in-law, they know that as soon as he gets out of the coma, the police are gonna arrest him. And so they are now working to try to clear his name. And in doing that, they find out all these things and they sort of start to interpret them differently so that oh, one wow. starts to think, oh no, I think he might've actually done this. And that makes this huge rift between them. And then, and then the reader kind of has to decide, I mean, there is an answer in the end, but the reader <laughs> has to decide like, which of them do I think is right in this? So interesting too, the dynamic between sister-in-laws. I don't yeah. have one, but just like watching my mom with my aunts my whole life. So all of that sounds so great. I will be anxiously awaiting it. Thank you. <laughs> um, we like to end every episode by saying a book that we're looking forward to read soon. So is there anything that you're currently reading or anything on your TBR that you're excited to get to? Um, so many. I'm like picturing <laughs> my towering TBR shelf. Um, well, I'd, I'd like to give I already read it, but it comes out in January. So I'd like to give a shout out to this book. Um, it's Chloe Cates is Missing by Mandy McHugh. Um, it's her debut novel and I got to read it cause I was gonna blurb it and it was just so amazing. I cannot wait until people can read it because it's one of those you have to talk to other pe uh. people about. And it's got this character that is like, the word that always comes to my mind is like diabolical, but that's not quite what it is. Like, like she thinks everything she's doing is right and normal, but there's something very disturbing and creepy there. And um, I have a character sort of in the literary universe I could kind of compare her to, but it would be sort of a spoiler. So um, it's just like this character. I cannot wait till people read it and it's out so that like we can talk about it because um it just blew me away. It's so good. Okay. Definitely adding that to my never ending TBR. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. I so enjoyed talking to you and getting to know a bit more about this book. I absolutely loved it. I think everyone who follows me on Instagram at this point knows that I love this book. So congratulations and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And this is the first time I got to talk about like spoilers in the book. So that was a oh. lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah.